0: Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are continuing our study of 1 Peter which I've entitled, Encouraging Words for Discouraging Times. And today, in particular, we're looking at Jesus, our example of suffering submission. We'll be looking in chapter 2 of First Peter. We'll be looking at verses 21 through 25. And in respect for the Word of God, let me ask you to stand as I read these verses. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins and his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually strained like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You may be seated. Father, we look to you to minister your word to us this day. I confess my total dependence on you and on your spirit to proclaim your truth, to anoint the message, to drive it into our beings at the very point of our need, that the body might be built up and that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we see in our passage is that suffering submission is... Our calling, he says in verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose. We have been called to suffer with Christ. Now, let me give you the overall picture to help you catch up if you've not been here the last few weeks. First of all, God has called us for the purpose of proclaiming his excellencies he calls us he saves us that we might go and proclaim what he's done for us that we might proclaim his excellencies to the world and Peter also told us that the way we are to proclaim the excellencies of God is to keep our behavior excellent in view of people that we are to, by our lifestyle, proclaim the excellencies of God. Your life and how you live is more powerful than what you say. And Peter says that we as Christians must live our lives in view of unbelievers, non-Christians, so that they can see the excellencies of God in the way We live. We are to proclaim His excellencies by living a godly life. And that's the principle. Now, the particular, he says, Our greatest proclamation of the excellencies of God will come when we live in submission to ungodly authorities. Peter says, The greatest display in your life of the grace of God Of what God can do in a person is when you live in submission to ungodly authorities. And then Peter even gets more specific when he talks about ungodly authorities. And we've not looked at these yet, but we will in the next few weeks. He says, first, we are to live in submission to bad bosses. We are to live in submission to godless government. And then he says we are to live in submission to mean mates. Now, submission is not something that we naturally want to do. And particularly, we don't like to submit to ungodly authorities. And even more than that, we detest having to suffer for our submission to ungodly authorities. We don't like to suffer, period. But it's not quite as bad if you're suffering because of something you've done and you at least say, well, you know, I just made a big mistake and I brought this on myself. I mean, you can endure it a little better then. But when you have to suffer because of what somebody else has done and they're making you suffer not because of anything you've done, but just because of the way they are, that is intolerable. We detest it. Especially when you think, man, I could rebel and be out of this situation. I could just rebel against this authority and I wouldn't have to go through this adversity and this difficulty and this suffering. And yet when you submit anyway and experience the suffering because of that submission to that ungodly authority, Peter says that proclaims, that shouts the excellencies of God. What greater contrast can be seen in the life of a Christian and the life of a non Christian than when a non Christian, when they undergo submission to ungodly bosses, they rebel? But when you as a Christian are willing to submit and suffer to ungodly authorities, how much greater does that proclaim the difference? between light and darkness, between Christians and non-Christians, between believers and unbelievers. Peter says, look at your life. Look at the way you live and realize that you are called to suffer. Now, that won't win any contest to impress people. And it's probably not a great way to start off your evangelistic conversation with somebody when you say, hey, become a Christian and you'll suffer. Become a Christian and you can I can guarantee you, you're going to have hard times. I can guarantee you, you're going to have adversity. You know, there are those who want to proclaim what we call a prosperity gospel that says come to Christ and everything will be great, all your problems will be taken care of, and you'll even get wealth in the process. Well, that's not what the Scripture says. The truth is, as Peter says, for this purpose you have been called. Since Christ also suffered for you as an example that you follow in his footsteps. Part of our Christian life, part of our calling is to suffer. And a part of that is suffering in submission To ungodly authorities. And the reason that's a part of our calling is because that proclaims when you live in submission to ungodly authorities, that proclaims the greatness of our God. Perhaps in a greater way than anything else we can do. And so first of all, we see that it is our calling To submit to ungodly authorities and to suffer because of it. Now let's look at the suffering of Jesus as our example. If you will notice in the middle of these sufferings that we're called on to do, whether it be submission to godless government or bad bosses or mean mates, right in the middle of that, Peter gives us the example of Jesus and his willingness to suffer to ungodly authorities. And so what Peter's saying is, Jesus is the key. Look to Jesus. Our key to being able to live a life of suffering submission is to look at Jesus Christ. He will enable us to live that life that we would not want to live on our own. We detest suffering so much that on our own we just will say, no, I don't want to do that. But when we look to Jesus and we see what he went through, and we look to him to give us the strength and power we need, then he will enable you, as a Christian, to proclaim his excellencies as you live a life of suffering, submission. So for the rest of this morning, we're going to look at Jesus and the suffering that he encountered, at the hands of godless authorities. And let's see what that says to you and to me. As we fulfill our calling. To follow Christ in suffering submission. The first thing I want you to see. Is that Jesus suffered for Christians. He suffered for us. Again verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you. Jesus' suffering and death was not because of mob violence, but it was a part of God's redemptive plan to save his own. The suffering and death of Jesus was by divine plan, and this plan was initiated in the heart of God before the world was created. We see over in Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching at Pentecost, look at what he says about the suffering of Jesus. This man, and he's talking about Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Peter's talking to the Jewish people. He said, you... Put Jesus to death, and you use the godless Roman soldiers to nail his hands to the cross. But let me tell you, it was not come it was not initiated, and the plan to kill Jesus did not take place in the home of Caiaphas, but it took place in the eternal councils of God before the world was ever created. That God put into motion a plan to save his people. And that plan involved the suffering and death of His Son, Jesus Christ. He suffered on our behalf. He suffered for us. He took our place on the cross. You and I should have been on that cross. We deserve to be there. We have sinned against a holy God. But Jesus did not deserve to be there. He did absolutely nothing to suffer for. And so he suffered in our place. He was our substitution. Instead of us having to go to the cross, he went to the cross on our behalf. He was not suffering for himself. He was suffering for us. And Peter mentions this again over in verse 18 of this same chapter. When he says, for Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You see that just and unjust? He's the just. We're the unjust. He died for sin once and for all, the just, Jesus, for the unjust, us, his own. His elect, he died for us. He took our place. So the next time you experience suffering, submission that glorifies God, remember Christ suffering, submission for you. So first, he suffered for us. Secondly, he suffered as our example. Again, in verse 21, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now, this word example is a very rich word, has a great word picture in it that I want to bring out. It will help you understand this verse in a better way than probably you've ever understood it before. The Greek word, for example, is the Greek word hupo gamon. Now, the prefix hupo means under. And the word gammon means writing. We get grammar. our English word grammar from this. So literally, it means to write under. Well, this was a word that was used to explain the technique that was used to teach children how to write. The teacher would write the letter. And the student would look very carefully at that letter. And then they would write Under the teacher's letter, exactly what the teacher had written. Now some of you who are around my age remember those writing tablets we used to have in the first grade, right? You remember on the cover it had all those letters. And then it was a lined tablet and you would look at the letter and you would trace right over it. Maybe some of you would go up to the blackboard and the teacher had written the letter and you would write exactly what the teacher wrote right under it. Well, that's what this word meant in Jesus' day. It was used to teach children how to write, to look carefully at the example, and then to trace it, to go just like it. Look at the great picture. We are to look at our Lord Jesus carefully, closely, at how He lived in suffering submission. And then when we go through suffering, we copy exactly the way he lived. We follow his example to the letter. Great word picture, isn't it? There's another word picture in this verse, and that is the word for steps. This is really the word for footsteps. And again, it's the idea of following in somebody's footsteps. I remember when I was growing up, I was probably about seven or eight, and I was down at my dad's uh, farm and He was walking through the pastures and the grass was kind of high and it was the summertime. And so he said to me, son, watch out for the snakes. He said, when you're walking out in the woods and in the field, you always look ahead of you. You don't look where your feet are, you look ahead of you. Because you're always looking for snakes. Well, I thought a good way to take care of that was I would just stay right behind him. And every place he put his foot, I would put my foot. And I'd follow in his footsteps and I'd be safe. It was kind of hard sometimes to make it, but I did, and I was safe. Well, that's the picture here. Follow in Jesus' footsteps. Step where He steps. Live like He lived when He went through experiencing suffering because of His willingness to submit to ungodly authorities. He is our example and we have to follow in His footsteps. Thirdly, He suffered unjustly. Verse 22. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. Jesus was totally undeserving of His suffering. He was absolutely sinless. Without guilt. Now Peter is actually quoting from the book of Isaiah... When he says he committed no sins. Now the Greek word for sin. Again has a good word picture in it. It means to miss the mark. It means to fall short. It was the idea again of an archer shooting at the bullseye. And he fell short of the target. He missed it. So a sin is any failure to measure up to God's perfect standard. Any failure to measure up to the holiness of God is a sin. We fall short of the target. What Peter says is that Jesus never missed the bullseye. He hit it every time. He never fell short of God's perfect standard of holiness in thought, in word, Or inaction. He was absolutely without sin. Hit the bullseye 100% of the time. So he didn't deserve to suffer. Because he never did anything wrong. And then Peter goes on to say, And no deceit was found within him. This word deceit means trickery or craftiness or little white lies. No deception was ever found on his tongue. When Jesus clashed with his enemies, there was no trace of evasion or guile or deceit or trickery found in him. Only pure holy truth came out of his mouth. Now, he could have lessened his suffering if he had just kind of stretched things a little bit. When he was asking, are you the Christ, the Son of God? He could have said, well, no, I never said that. You know, he could have lied and he wouldn't have been crucified. He wouldn't have been killed. But he spoke nothing but the truth. Absolutely no deceit was found in him. Now look at this word found. It means to look closely, to scrutinize, and not find anything wrong. It means you look close, you really look it over, and upon looking it all over, you don't find anything wrong. Peter says he was found, no deceit was found in his mouth. Now, who's, who's saying this? Peter. Peter, who lived with Jesus over two years, 24-7, day in, day out, says having closely looked at his life 24-7 for over two years, I never ever... Found any deceit in him. Nothing but absolute pure sincerity, pure integrity, pure truth. Now that's saying something, isn't it? Jesus did not deserve to suffer what he suffered. His suffering was unjust. Fourth thing, he suffered silently. Look in verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus was repeatedly and unmercifully reviled. And we don't use the term revile much in our day. But what it means is, it means a harsh railing, biting insults, wounding accusations, Mean words, mean-spirited words meant to injure. We would probably say cussing somebody out. I mean, just really railing really giving them a hard time. This is what they did to Jesus. When He was there on the cross, they were making fun of Him. They were mocking Him. They were insulting Him. Let me just give you one example. Over in Matthew 26. Beginning with verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. Talking about Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, was accused of blaspheming God because He did not deny that He was God. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and they beat him with their fist. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who would hit you? You see, they blindfolded him. And then they would hit him and say, well, if you're the Christ, you should know everything. Tell us who hit you. You see, they were taunting him. They were playing a game. They were making fun of him. And then in chapter 27, verse 27, it goes on. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. Again, they were mocking him, acting like he was a a king. And they knelt down before him and mocked him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They sped on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they'd mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put on his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify. Him. Yet as he was undergoing all this suffering, he didn't utter a word. Not a word. You know what our first reaction when somebody reviles us, when somebody... Mocks us when somebody rails against us is to fight back. Man, it just, it just comes out sometimes, doesn't it? We want to fight back. We want to retaliate. But Jesus did not. He suffered silently. Now Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would suffer silently in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter, like a sheep that's silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. Jesus suffered silently. He uttered no threats. What a lesson for us. When we are experiencing suffering, submission, We must not come back with words of anger or griping, but we must suffer silently. Next, Jesus suffered submissively in the last part of verse 23, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. This is the absolute key to this whole book, 1 Peter. This is the key to being able to live a life of suffering submission. The key is you entrust your soul to God. You believe that God is in control of your suffering, not the authority that's inflicting it. Though Jesus' pain and suffering was being inflicted upon him by the Roman soldiers... And by the religious leaders, he knew they could do nothing to him that his father had not preordained, that his father did not allow. And so he could entrust himself to him who judges righteously. He knew that he could entrust himself to the righteous judge, though men accused him of being a blasphemer, though men accused him of being a liar, he knew that the righteous judge, that his father knew his heart and knew that in his heart he was sinless and he would entrust himself to his father. That he was in total control. In Acts 4, when the early church was suffering persecution, they gathered together to pray that God would give them boldness. And Peter, in that prayer, talks about God's sovereign control when he says... For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Peter says... Whatever happened to Jesus, though it was at the hands of godless people, God the Father was in control. It was carrying forth His plan. It was predetermined that Jesus would suffer for us. And so when Jesus was undergoing that suffering, He didn't have to fight back. He did not have to utter threats. He could have but with a whisper have brought 60,000 angels and destroyed not only those soldiers, but the whole planet. But he did not. He was able to live a life of suffering submission because he entrusted himself to God. Oh, that is the key. When you're undergoing hardships and adversity and suffering at the hands of somebody else, you can say, God, I know this person can do absolutely nothing to me that you do not allow to happen, that you have not ordained in your divine wisdom. Therefore, I will submit trusting you In trusting my soul. That word entrust means to place something in somebody's care for them to take care of it. That means you would place your valuables in somebody's care because you knew they were able and they were willing to take care of it and keep it safe for you. That's what it means. Jesus entrusted Himself confidently into the hands of His heavenly Father because He knew His Father could take care of Him. And therefore, He could suffer submissively and silently. Number six, He also suffered Purposely, verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He himself carried up our sins in his body to the cross. You see the word bore? It was used in the Old Testament to talk about the priest taking the sacrifice up to the altar To be killed. You remember the Old Testament they would bring sacrifices. And they would have to confess their sins over that animal. That animal took their sins upon itself symbolically. And then the high priest or the priest would take that that animal. And they would take it up with the sins of that person on it. And then they would place it on the altar and it would be killed. God said... I will let that be a substitute for you. You should be the one dying on that altar because you're the one that sinned. But I will allow that animal to be a substitute for you to take your place. But they had to keep doing it because it was only temporary. Because that sacrifice was only a prototype. It was only a picture of the true sacrifice that God was going to send someday the Lord Jesus. And Peter says... Here, that Jesus took our sins upon Himself and took them as the priest of God. He took them up to the altar which was the cross. That altar in the Old Testament was just a picture of the cross. The ultimate altar. And Jesus took our sins upon Himself took them to the cross and died for us. He died that we might die to sin. Look at what he says. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In some way, we cannot understand 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on that cross, he took our sins, the sins of his people, with him on that cross. He paid the penalty for those sins. He totally satisfied the holy wrath of God over the sins of His people through His death. He was that atoning sacrifice. He was that propitiation, that appeasing, that satisfaction. And the holy wrath of God looked at Jesus and He was satisfied that the penalty for the sins of His chosen ones had been satisfied. It had been paid. And in some way, when Jesus died on the cross, those of us who are Christians, we died with Him, and the power of sin was broken in our lives. We've been separated from the power of sin. That's what it means to die to sin. Death in the Scripture means separation. Physical death is the Spirit being separated from the body. To die to sin means the power of sin has been broken in our lives, and we don't have to sin anymore. That's not annihilated. It's still around and sin still wants you to, to give into it, but you don't have to. Die to sin and live to righteousness. We have the resurrection life of Christ. That's what's so tremendous about the resurrection. It's the power of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. The same power that brought him alive from the dead is a power that transforms our lives. If you're a Christian, you have that resurrection power at work in you. And it is that resurrection power that enables you to live the Christian life. It enables you to say no to sin and say yes to God. It's that resurrection power that changes, that transforms our life. And then lastly, he suffered brutally. Verse 24. For by his wounds you were healed. Now, you see the word wounds, actually it's in the singular in the Greek. Why did Peter say, by his wound you were healed? Ancient writers who had witnessed crucifixions and had witnessed the punishment of hitting with the cat of nine tails say that this this instrument that had the nine whip that had the nine pieces of of leather with sharp stones and glass in it so that every time it was laid across the back it was like nine different whips being laid across the back and the way Jesus was stretched out and the way he was swept that the ancients write that this was such a bloody ordeal and such a horrible ordeal that the skin would be ripped off the back, that the sinews would be exposed, that the tendons would be exposed, and even many times the intestines would be exposed through this merciless beating of this cat of nine tails. I think what Peter is saying to us, that what he saw was one bloody wound as he saw the back of Jesus, it was so mangled, it was so torn to to shreds that it was like one bloody wound. And so he uses a singular. He says, by his bloody wound, you were healed. You were saved. That word "heal" means we were saved. That means that God accepted the punishment of Christ for us on our behalf and that we can have eternal life through Him. He lived the perfect life we could not live. And He died the death that we deserved. He took our place so that we wouldn't have to suffer what He suffered. That we wouldn't have to suffer eternal separation from a holy God. Jesus suffered hell for us on that cross. When the darkness was pulled across for three hours, Jesus experienced the undiluted, unmitigated, holy hatred of God over sin in its full form upon Himself. That's why He cried out, My God, my God, why has Thou forsaken me? Because He became sin, who knew no sin, on our behalf that we might have the righteousness of God in Him. Through His bloody wound, through His perfect life, through His resurrection, we may be saved, we may be healed. Through His suffering submission, Jesus became our Savior. Verse 25 says, For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. We all come into this life strain, going our own direction, doing our own thing. But we need to come to a place that we say, this is not the way I want to live. Doing my own thing, going my own way, is just leading me into destruction. God, I want to live for you. I recognize what Jesus did on the cross. He took my place. I deserve to be there. I know I don't deserve it. I know I can't earn it. But it's a free gift of your love. And I come to you, Lord Jesus, my shepherd, the guardian of my soul. I'm entrusting myself to you. I'm surrendering my will to you as my Lord. I'm placing my faith in you as my Savior. That You've done everything necessary for me to have my sins forgiven and to have a place in heaven for eternity. Have you made that decision? Are you still wandering like sheep going astray? Or have you come to the shepherd and guardian of your soul? Come to Jesus today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to suffer for us. That you are willing to die for us. That we might have life. And that we might live to righteousness. I pray you would take the truth of your word, minister it through your spirit today, bring souls into your kingdom, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning as the Holy Spirit has dealt with you. If you've never come to that place in your life that you've surrendered to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to do so today. If you'll just step out and come down and take my hand, I'll be glad to share with you everything you need to know. To walk away from here a different person, a new creature in Christ.